Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Cinzia Bianco. Cinzia is a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and an expert on the Arabian Gulf, the GCC, and European relations with Middle East countries. Our conversation today is about the European Union's drive to broaden, deepen, and strengthen relations with the Gulf states. Cinzia, delighted to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for having me back. The new strategic partnership with the GCC that's proposed by the EU was announced on the 18th of May in Brussels. What are the key elements, Chinzia? So this was uh, about a year in the making, and it's basically uh, the EU's attempt to relaunch the relations with uh, the Gulf monarchies, including via the Gulf Cooperation Council as an institution, but not exclusively, because there is a large there is a clear acknowledgement of the necessity to also work bilaterally with the individual countries. And so it's basically how the EU imagines their ideal partnership with the Gulf monarchies, where they think that they can add value to the Gulf uh, partners and the Gulf partners can add value to the EU's interests. And it involves what? Uh, trade, energy, yes. climate, so- security... Yeah, so walk me through that. So the EU, I mean, for, um, it's actually quite rare that this happens, but it's very welcome that they have defined clearly what are these interests, these European interests that can be advanced uh, via partnership with the Gulf monarchies and vice versa. And so the domains where they want to focus um, are very clear. There's, uh, of course, trade and investment. And then there is the climate change and environmental security, energy security and the energy transition, sort of the tra- welcoming, um, supporting the Gulf monarchies into a, an energy transition from fossil fuels to green um, energy, but in a way that also uh, supports the EU's necessity to diversify away from Russian energy. Um, then it deals with, uh, for example, health security, um, development and humanitarian aid, of course, human rights and societal liberalization. Um, and then finally, you know, regional de-escalation and uh, stability. And that sort of includes also subchapters on regional security. For example, an interesting uh, set of uh, activities on maritime security and cooperation on countering um, radicalization and terrorism. It's a long uh, shopping list, if I can put it that way. Uh, the the trade issue now that's been kicked around for a long time, and I think it was the uh, the GCC Secretary General. I'm just quoting what he said here. The two parties have been unable to reach an agreement on trade despite starting negotiations three decades ago due to procrastination by the European side. So a a, a bit of skepticism there. Yeah, that's not the full story. There has been procrastination um, on both sides and obstacles have been raised on both sides. I'm actually quite skeptical that, um, that there could be actual progress, concrete progress on a free trade agreement as we 
um, intend traditionally. Um, you know, some of the issues that were there um, historically are still there. For example, the EU simply cannot sign a free trade agreement without a human rights clause. And this is taken very badly politically in the Gulf. And then there are still very clear competing interests um, at the industrial level on both sides. And then to these issues, which sort of were old issues, there are also new issues, which, uh, for example, the largest one is that the main product and products, actually plural, that the Gulf monarchies export globally are linked in one way or another to fossil fuels. And the EU is still very much committed to um, sort of ease their dependency on fossil fuels and push for a more climate-friendly energy relations. So I simply cannot see where actual progress could be made on a traditional free trade agreement. I personally think that it would be much more productive to focus on a preferential trade agreement that, for example, covers very specific technologies that the Gulf monarchies are extremely interested to import from, from Europe and vice versa is, for example, linked to green energy or electricity where there are there is actual potential um, to import from the Gulf. Yeah, well, that's, that's very interesting because obviously... There is an interest on both sides on green energy. Uh, clearly, the Gulf is moving forward. They need to move forward on that front. And, uh, and the EU, as you say, has taken a, a position on the uh, climate change and the importance of getting to net zero. But, but obviously, the war in Ukraine has really focused minds. Uh, so how big is the immediate issue of LNG getting all those Gulf energy products into Europe as quickly as possible so that Europe can shake off the energy shackles that Putin has so cleverly laid upon them. So this is a very interesting and, and complicated um, issue, of course, because it's true that in the short and medium term, the EU and European governments um, still acknowledge that uh, it will be necessary to have access to traditional um, sources of energy, such as oil and, and gas, especially, in, including in the form of liquefied natural gas, so LNG. And at the same time, um, the EU and European countries do have partners that they can turn to, and those are not necessarily in the Gulf, uh, if you exclude Qatar. So if you look at, for example, more traditional products such as oil and even gas, um, there are existing pipelines connecting um, Europe to North Africa rather than the Gulf. But it's we're not talking about massive, massive quantities. So, for example, if we still look at oil, what would really be important for the Europeans is that um, Saudi Arabia returns to its traditional role as a stabilizer, a market stabilizer, and actually sort of cooperates more into lowering prices in general of oil specifically and all the products uh, whose price is linked to that of oil. So um, if, you look, if we instead turn towards gas and in particular LNG, of course, it's a slightly different story because Qatar then becomes quite important and there are already ongoing negotiations between Qatar and in particular Italy and Germany to um, significantly increase their imports um, from the country of LNG. But still, all of these sort of uh, dynamics that are linked to traditional fossil fuels have an expiration date 
from the EU's point of view. And that's very, very clear, not only in the Gulf, the Gulf strategy, but also in the external energy strategy and the specific plan, energy plan to diversify away from Russian energy, which is called Repower EU. So that expiration date, which is actually quite soon, um, it's unclear if it's 2025, 2027, definitely by 2030, that's the latest. Then you, the EU and individual European governments want to work with the Gulf and with other partners to um, what to do beyond that date. And that's where green energy, in particular green hydrogen, but also electricity becomes the most important product. And do you think those timeframes are realistic, particularly in terms of the uh, situation with Ukraine? I mean, how quickly do these things need to be resolved? I mean, I think it's quite realistic um, in the sense that, you know, uh, there is already, if we look at specific countries and um, how they were able to diversify away from Russian energy already, it's, it's actually quite surprising. So, for example, even, you know, Italy, which was highly dependent on, uh, on Russian uh, oil and uh, specifically Russian gas, has already been able to diversify a significant chunk of that import uh, from away looking towards other, other partners around the world. So I, I think, you know, it is doable. And of course, it's not going to be easy, uh, but uh, it is doable. And the thing about the EU is that, you know, it's a very slow moving beast, if you want. But then once they sort of made a determina- make a determination, um, consensus driven determination, in one direction or, of, or another, then it's incredibly difficult for them to turn back. So now I think the decision has been made that all efforts should be uh, extended to diversify away from Russian energy. Let's look at security and stability, which is a big part of this uh, partnership paper. Um, and I'm wondering about the JCPOA, the EU you know, was very much opposed to Trump pulling out. Uh, They've been pushing hard to get Biden to just to restart it as quickly as possible. It's stalled uh, over things, particularly over the IRGC designation as a terrorist organization. But I'm wondering if the EU would move closer to the Gulf states approach. The Gulf states want a JCPOA 2.0, which would include things like uh, some controls on ballistic missiles. Is that in any way going to be part of the conversation? No, I don't think so. I mean, for the same sort of, in the same mindset that I just described, um, the EU has long made a determination that the JCPOA needs to be in place as a first step to, to build on um, sort of a regional security architecture in an incremental way. And they have never been open to consider a JCPOA 2.0 in the sense of adding a bunch of different issues to the JCPOA itself. So they, what they want to do is rather they want to get the JCPOA done and then build on top of the JCPOA with different conversations going into different directions. One is definitely mis- missile controls and in general uh, arms control, but also nuclear security um, and a, a bunch of other conversations that are confidence building measures between the two sides of the government. 
itself. And the partnership document sort of does a, a good job of detailing uh, the different ways and the different ideas that the EU is considering as add-ons to the JCPOA, but only once the JCPOA is concluded. Because from Brussels' point of view, and this is shared in different European capitals, there is no chance to make actual progress on de-escalation in the region without a, a JCPOA. So this is one of, I would argue, a big difference um, of opinions and views between the European side and some of the Gulf monarchies. Not all of them, because of course, some Gulf monarchies such as Oman or Qatar agree uh, with that view that the JCPOA um, should be revived and then you should build on that. Others, Saudi Arabia in particular, but to some extent also the UAE, view things differently. So there are differences there um, which remain. Mm, okay. Um When the uh, partnership document was released, uh, High Representative Joseph Borrell issued a statement. And and, and part of that statement, he said, we need to work more closely together on stability in the Gulf and the Middle East, on global security threats, energy security, climate change, and the green transition, digitalization, trade and investment. No mention there, Chinzia, of human rights. Uh, There is a chapter, chapter six, that that deals with it. uh, But That's a fairly big discrepancy, isn't it? Because, you know, you look at the Gulf states, particularly the Saudis, but certainly the Emiratis, they have serious human rights issues that the EU should be very concerned about. And the EU is very concerned about um, human rights violations and issues in in all of the Gulf monarchies, to be fair. I think, you know, they the EU, just like other European governments individually, have sort of come to the conclusion that the approach that they have had for decades vis-a-vis the Gulf monarchies, an approach that actually sort of uh, was quite assertive on human rights in particular, has really led to nothing. And uh, the small or big societal liberalizations or, uh, you know, um, progress in uh, religious freedom that have been made in the Gulf were really not linked or um, sort of tied to a willingness of Gulf leaders to please the Europeans in any way. So I think they, the Europeans and the EU are now choosing a different approach. Um, for example, the sort of publication of this strategic partnership document and the follow-up documents that will sort of deal with the implementation of this strategy were tied very much to the fact that all Gulf monarchies should enter a human rights dialogue with the EU and deal with these issues bilaterally uh, at the political level and in a sort of a dialogue that involves regular regular meetings and quite frank conversations. So I think they're trying a different approach that is a bit more driven by building on whatever small opening there might be in, in these Gulf countries. And for example, on religious freedom and, and other issues or so women's rights and try to build on, on what is already there as a possibility or as an opportunity rather than uh, sort of very assertively going in for political rights, which still remain a very, very big, um, thick red line in all of the Gulf monarchies. Indeed, indeed they do. And I mean, one of the lines that has been repeated often is that the way we handle 
our citizens, it's our issue, it's our sovereignty, don't step on us, don't step on our sovereignty. And yet you still have these very, very serious human rights abuses. But at the same time, we see increasingly Mohammed bin Salman, he's being visited by Boris Johnson, by Erdogan, uh, Macron went to see him in December. Uh, there is already an acceptance. It seems to me that uh, we're going to look the other way when it comes to uh, some of these very, very serious human rights abuses. To, to, to take one example, of course, is the murder of, of Jamal Hashushi. But there does seem to be now a mood afoot that says, we're going to set this aside and it's going to be quietly, quietly. And as you say, not this more overt demand, if you will, that there be a change in human rights approaches in these countries. I don't think that um, there is a willingness to brush those issues aside, but there is a way more um, pragmatic approach towards dealing specifically with the leadership in these countries, which, you know, at the end of the day, if you do want to deal with Saudi Arabia, you have to deal with Mohammed bin Salman. And that's long been the case. Um, and I think, you know, several governments are, have now sort of accepted this, this fact. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think that's, that is clear. Uh, but are you concerned uh, that, that the human rights issues will be set aside? No, I don't think so. I, as I mentioned, I think they will be, they will continue to be brought up, um, in the human rights dialogue and also, you know, publicly by all of the different, uh, um, European officials that, for, who, for example, visit those countries. Just to give you an example, um, the chair of the delegation for relations with the Arabian Peninsula at the European Parliament, Hannah Neumann, um, was just recently in the UAE and she has been around in all of the different Gulf countries. And she's always very, very open publicly and privately about the importance of um, making progress on, on human rights abuses. And even the, the partnership itself, especially if you look at the chapter on digitalization, which I find it, that's very interesting little nuance there. The EU clearly states takes a very strong assertive position against, for example, cyber surveillance of um, Gulf citizens of, you know, and the, and the fact that the cyber instrument and the digital instruments can be used to further clamp down on, on human rights, in particular civil and political rights. And, uh, and that's very interesting if you think about the fact that actually the Gulf leaderships have shown a very significant interest into cyber surveillance technology, uh, for example, by partnering up with uh, Chinese companies that are, of course, extremely strong and, uh, and extremely bent on, uh, on deploying this kind of uh, cyber surveillance instruments and AI instruments even against um, their own citizens. Mm. Yes, and of course, the UAE is... Uh very much involved with the Israeli uh, security uh, yes. system <laughs> for, for, for surveillance techniques. But, yes. but look, let, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, moving forward. Uh, these sorts of deals, conversations, uh, proposals, propositions, they're often big on the talk, not so big on the walk. So to use another cliche, is this a, a game changer, Jensen? I think 
um, that's very true that, you know, it's very hard to then, um, look at the implementation. And I think this, this time it will depend on three sort of factors. The first one is there is going to be sort of, we're, we're going to see published a, a number of other documents that will build on this strategy and be very quite more specific on the implementation of the different domains. So on that front, uh, we should sort of hear more soon um, about the implementation. Uh, but then there are two potential obstacles. The first one is, of course, I mean, inevitably, the Europeans are distracted by uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so they have to deal with much bigger issues close to home. So this is, uh, for sure, it will suck a lot of uh, political energy and attention. Um, and then the third issue linked to the second one, which is another potential obstacle to implementing the Gulf strategy, is that um, some of the Gulf monarchies, uh, in particular uh, Saudi Arabia, to some extent also the UAE, have taken a very ambiguous uh, position on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and in some cases have outright refused to support um, the Europeans and the United States against Russia um, in some key ways that would uh, significantly help to uh, sort of curtail the Russian aggression, aggression to, towards Ukraine. So if that approach and attitude continues, we will hear a lot more political opposition in Europe from different political parties, parliamentarians, but also associations um, at different levels that are, you know, more or less plugged in the official dome that will sort of uh, voice opposition towards to, to moving forward with this strategic partnership in amid, you know, the, the context uh, where we can't really look at two heavyweights in the Gulf um, as uh, our partners vis-a-vis -vis this very, very significant crisis that we are having to deal with. Um, we are already hearing some of that arguments made. Uh, some of those arguments being made uh, where, you know, a number of uh, politicians, even in position of leadership, are expressing uh, frustration that we should move forward with this uh, strategic partnership with countries that do probably do, are not showing the way they want to be our partners when we uh, most need them. So this is, you know, probably going to be a significant uh, obstacle uh, that may really sort of slow down the implementation of the strategy. And the two heavyweights being, of course, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Should the UK post-Brexit be feeling at all uneasy about the new partnership initiative between uh, the EU and the GCC? Should this be a worry to Boris Johnson? Um, not necessarily, um, but I will say that there were strong hopes, which I shared personally, that um, the UK and um, the EU and the Europeans in general would be able to sort of separate the different issues and sort of compartmentalize, you know, for example, uh, cooperation in the Middle East and in particular in the Gulf, uh, and, and really insulate that from the fallout of the, of, of Brexit. 
But sadly, what happened was that um, the tensions linked to Brexit specifically, things like the Northern Ireland Protocol, things like, you know, how to deal with customs on both sides, and in general, sort of political tensions have become obstacles to continue cooperation, uh, even, you know, abroad, and in particular in the Middle East and in the Gulf, where it made a lot of sense. So um, this inability to insulate Brexit and from the other issues has led to very little coordination and cooperation. Uh, and we see that also in this partnership. You sort of look um, between, read between lines. It's clear that it's not really thinking about um, a strategic coordination with the UK in the region necessarily. Yeah, it's just not there, is it? The uh, that possibility of some sort of coordination. Uh, it, it's clear to me, Chinzia, what the EU could get out of the partnership. But but what do you think the GCC gains from it? I think you know a, a number of things. Um, first of all, this partnership is within a process that could really uh, mean. Um, opportunities to empower Gulf citizens in terms of, you know, economically and, and socially. Uh, so, for example, it includes a number of activities of training and vocational uh, opportunities, educational opportunities. The partnership opens up the the chance for Gulf students to do Erasmus in uh, in Europe, uh, closer academic cooperation, um, and sort of really uh, steps up all of the instruments that the Gulf monarchies will have to uh, benefit from a cooperation with the EU and European countries in general to empower their citizens economically and that thereby sort of uh, strengthening also the opportunity of uh, doing economic diversification, but also socially as, uh, you know, individuals. Uh, so I think if the Gulf countries are serious about um, the economic diversification and pushing their their citizens towards the private sector and entrepreneurship and all of these uh, uh, sort of act- economic activities, then um, they, they, Europe is the perfect partner for them. And you know, even again, if they are serious. Uh, about looking beyond oil and how to to survive economically and even to thrive and to become really leading exporters and players in green energy and electricity. Again, the European Union is the only large market that is more or less or may be more or less ready to be their market. Um, and empower them in that sense. So it's absolutely necessary from their point of view, I think, to have a comprehensive energy partnership with Europe um, that would enable them to remain leading energy exporters globally, even after the age of oil and, and even of gas. And then, you know, again, as well, in the shared neighborhood in the Mediterranean, it doesn't make sense for either party, for the EU or for the Gulf, to really be competing 
and sort of cancel each other out uh, geopolitically uh, or, you know, with investments. Uh, it makes no sense. It's just a waste of energy, of resources, of time. Uh, it makes uh, much more sense to cooperate, to talk, to coordinate where possible, to join forces. Even in humanitarian and development aid, we have seen many, many times, you know, different players taking initiatives that basically uh, cancel each other out and that that really makes no sense. So I think, you know, to all of that combined in the context of a U.S. retrenchment from the Middle East, um, it is very, very important for the Gulf to to cooperate more with uh, the EU. And the final issue is on environmental security. I mean, these days we're looking at uh, devastating sandstorms um, really sort of hitting different countries um, in the Gulf and in the wider region, for example, Iraq, but even Qatar, Kuwait. And sandstorms are just one of the many ways that um, environmental insecurity and climate change can become existential issues for the Gulf uh, countries uh, in the near future. So uh, even on those files, the EU is by far the most advanced partner that they could wish for. Uh, if you look, for example, at desalination te uh, technology, uh, the Gulf monarchies import basically everything from the EU and then from some, uh, uh, and, and then some other um, technology from uh, Asia in particular Korea and Japan, but the EU is the dominant player and uh, it will be on a number of technology that could mitigate the impact of climate change um, in the Gulf. Yes, um, w well put, but I'm thinking about, you said it a couple of times, if they are serious about diversification, about empowering their citizens, uh, you know, that implies that they'd have to move on issues of human rights, on issues of uh, letting their citizens have a say in how they're governed. And that, to me, could be the biggest stumbling block. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's a, it's a mixed bag. But but if you look at the data, exclude for a second Qatar and UAE, where the wealth per capita is just so immense that there is no incentive to really do any kind of diversification. But look at Saudi Arabia, Kuwait even, and Oman, um, and Bahrain to, to a certain extent. But Bahrain is already, you know, they, um, they are already more involved than other Gulf citizens in the private sector. So if you look at them and you look at the sort of employment data, you will see that actually they have been serious about employing much more of their uh, of their citizens into the private sector and pushing more towards diversification. Just this week, Kuwait has initiated a conversation about opening up more opportunities to Kuwaitis and in particular to Bidun um, citizens, which are actually non-Kuwaitis because they don't technically have Kuwaiti citizenship, but they are Kuwaiti nationals that, you know, uh, um, should be sort of encouraged to go into the private sector and even take up uh, jobs that uh, normally are dominated by foreign labor. So there is, you know, uh, it's it's difficult, but there is some seriousness uh, in that. And to really sort of uh, uh, move to the next step, all of the Gulf countries recognize that they need more um, access to high-level training, in particular vocational, but not only, even in the creative industry, in tourism, uh, for example, with all of the investments that 
think about just Saudi Arabia is making or wants to make into their own tourism industry, um, there they would definitely need uh, more um, sort of more opportunities to to uh, step up the level of their offer. Jinzia, thank you. We'll we'll watch this space as uh, to to throw in another cliche. But th- thanks so much. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Cinzia Bianco, a visiting fellow with the European Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched, and in that time, the podcasts have been listened to nearly 75,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest Daily Newsletter features the very best of mean analysts, analysts like Chinzia. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.